This, so today has the potential to be one of those, uh, those paradigm-shifting kind of conversations uh, because it, it challenges us in some new ways. And so we're going to look, the, the whole point here of these weeks is to take a look at the stories of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and ask, where's the good news? Because it's the Gospel of Mark. Gospel means good news, the Greek word. Um, and so, so we are, uh, we're, we're looking at stories that maybe are sometimes overlooked or um, just taking our time for just a couple more weeks and, um, and, and asking the question of like, okay, what, where do we see good news emerging here? And this one is really unique, not just because it's a challenging passage. Um, I keep looking at these passages and, and starting to ask myself, why did I choose to teach on these passages? Uh, some of these would be much easier to ignore, which is exactly which is exactly what happens to this one. Although they don't ignore all of it. <clears throat> um, the, the story that we're going to talk about is what happens when, when like, we get a sense that something should be good news, but it doesn't kind of come across that way or, or feel that way. Uh, so we're looking at another healing story. And uh, the, the story is, um, deals with a, a woman who is, who is not Jewish, and she approaches Jesus and she asks for something. And eventually, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Eventually, the woman's daughter gets healed. And so what we want to do is just look to that and say, well, it all ends nice. And, and maybe gloss over something that could make us incredibly uncomfortable if we look at it. And so, uh, so what are we going to do? We're going to look at it. Uh, let's, uh, I think I, oh, I do have connection. Excellent. All right. So we're in Mark 7. And here's the story. Jesus left that place, all right, that place um, in Mark 7. Let me turn to it in this. It's easier to to work with. Um, That place in Mark 7 is Jesus has been doing kind of a healing healing tour. Uh, Most of the time in the the, uh, Capernaum region or or Galilee at this point, Um, they've just been traveling on the edge of um, all these small towns that are primarily Jewish, okay? So, so in, uh, in chapter 7, we've had one experience so far where Jesus has had direct connection with a non-Jewish person, and we talked about that. That was this, this uh, Gerasene man. Remember that a few weeks ago? He was possessed by the legion. We did that whole fun legion message um, in the tombs with the pigs and everything like that. Okay, so... So that's the only real interaction that we've seen so far with, with a lot of non-Jewish presences. Um, but, but here's what happens in, in Mark 7, um, starting in, uh, in verse 24. Uh, oh, I should say, no, we'll, we'll talk about it. We, he just had a fight with a bunch of Pharisees, okay, right before this. Okay, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Because it's big news right now. Jesus is well known for the healings that have happened. Word is spreading fast. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. That's important. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. 
the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This is a bizarre and weird story, friends. And if you're like me, it has the potential to make you very uncomfortable. And before we say, hey, it's in the Bible, it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Can we just put that to bed? Um, Because that is not helpful for us to to grow deeper in relationship with God. Um, That's actually kind of the entire message. I just let the cat out of the bag. Uh, but, But we need to look and say, that... This whole thing, this whole experience, it has a, a happy ending, but we want to ignore the, the lead-off that's, that's off-putting and, and almost undeniably includes a racial slur. I mean, Jesus kind of sounds like a jerk in this passage. Now, can you guys handle honesty in church? We Okay. Because uh, this, you know, this, is, this is where we go when we actually seek truth and engage with this stuff. So, so what? What is the question here? What is going on? Is Jesus, as some uh, scholars would say, simply culturally conditioned because he was born in a time and a place to believe that Gentile people are dogs? Less than. And Jesus had to grow as well. And that's a part of you know, a part of his, his moral perfection was the ability to learn and grow. We're told that when he was younger, he grew in wisdom and stature. So was there still growth? That's really hard. I, I, I don't personally tend to think that that's where we can go because of what we've seen happening already before this moment. But it's a question. But it seems like a stretch for me. Or maybe he's speaking literal truth. Like a, a more fundamental look at this would say, where, you know, hey, God cares first about the Jewish people and then the rest after that. Doesn't the Bible say that? Um, well, if you pick certain verses, sure. Um, but not exactly. The, the strategy that God was working through in the Bible was certainly to work through a particular people for the sake of the world. But that's different than necessarily saying that Jewish people are God's children, and Gentile people, non-Jewish people, are, are dogs. It seems that Jesus may have been on the opposite trajectory of that. So let's just take a look at what was happening before this episode, and then we'll get to, to the really interesting stuff. So in Mark 5, Jesus crosses the sea, like we talked about, and he heals a Gentile man of an impure spirit. All right? This was already, um, like, culture-smashing in virtually every way. I'm not going to rehash that. You can listen to that mass- message with the pigs and everything. Then he goes to a synagogue leader, and he heals his daughter. And while on the way, okay, a woman touches his clothing to be healed, and it works. She breaks all the rules, right? But Jesus speaks wholeness to her body and to her mind and to her spirit, okay? Then Jesus goes home, and he's rejected in his hometown. Sabrina shared about this last week. It continues on. Then Jesus prepares his disciples to be misunderstood and rejected when they go out. All right? And then, so so there's all of these like, hey, things are not going to be as you think. I'm flipping the system on its head. It's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to be weird, all this stuff. Then he goes and we have the feeding of the 5,000, where it's really interesting. It's a Jewish crowd following him, and you probably know the story, but there's these Five loaves of bread and two fish. And he works with the disciples 
Jesus does it, but he tries to help them learn how to partner with it. And he, he multiplies the food, right? I'm not, I'm not shocking anybody probably here, but if this is your first time, it's a really cool miracle. I'm a big food guy. And so lots of people get to eat as much as they want. And they start with five loaves. And do you remember what's, what happens at the end? Twelve baskets of leftovers are collected. Twelve baskets, more than enough, like times a Google. You know Google's a number, right? I guess, a, a, is it a million million? Is that what a Google is? What is it, Cooper? One with a hundred zeros. Okay, you guys can do the math later or write that down. But it's, it's this exponential amount more than originally was, was available. There's more. It's unbelievable. It's ridiculous how much more there is than what was started with. So these are the stories. I, I think, by the way, that the, that's kind of important to what's about to happen. But just before our story then, Jesus gets into it with the religious leaders giving a totally new take on the religious norms for the day. They say, Jesus, you're not following our purity rules. Jesus says, you're not following God's heart. And there's this big boom, boom thing. And they they go back and forth a little bit. Um, But the whole point is discussing what what is clean and what's unclean and what defiles and what doesn't defile you, what makes you in or out. And during the debate, here's what's interesting. They don't get Jesus to budge. They want to argue that... It's important to follow these rituals, and it's important because God cares about, you know, the the behaviors in these ways, and and Jesus says you're missing the point completely for what God cares about, and you're acting like all of these externals are the defining point, because that's how the Jewish people kept their difference from others. They were clean, and everybody else was unclean by their actions, by the food they ate, by all this stuff. So that's the argument that happens, and, and they don't get Jesus to budge at all. Um... Okay, and, uh, and by the way, in, in doing so, we're told in the scriptures that when Jesus talks about defiling, he's declaring all foods clean, okay? Which was the thing that made, one of the things that made Gentiles outsiders. They ate unclean foods. So Jesus defa- declares all foods clean, which was this major dividing line between Jews and non-Jews. Um, the Jewish people used this to talk about how others were unclean and outside of God's family, but they were not. <sighs> all right, let's look at one more contextual clue that I think is... Uh, is really important, and I don't usually do this, honestly, because each gospel writer has their own way of telling a story for their own reasons. So I don't often actually match the two tellings in, or the three tellings in various gospels to compare them, because each author wants to present certain ideas for their purposes. But Matthew kind of gives us some extra details, and I think it's helpful here, so we're going to break my, my normal rule. So in the Gospel of Matthew, when he's telling this story, the disciples play a really significant role. So this woman is following Jesus, asking for mercy, okay? And the disciples know that there's three things going on with this woman. Number one, she's a woman, so her gender is prohibitive. Second, she's a Gentile, so religiously, okay, religiously she's an outsider. And third, she's a Syrophoenician or what it, Matthew highlights, because people might have, well, every, every Jewish person would have understood it, but other readers might not have caught this. Um, Matthew tells us she's of Canaanite origin. Seraphonician people came from the Canaanites, okay? And so the Canaanites were, so, so now we have, we have gender, we have religion, and we have racial background. The Canaanites and the, the Jewish people, I mean the Jewish people in Exodus 20, this is where Moses 
instructed what we call the ban against the Canaanites, a complete wiping out, literally the words, show no mercy when you get to their land, is what the backstory of the history of the Israelite people is toward these folks. There was no good blood in here. In fact, there were many bloody stories that were very bad. So that's all, that's all the backstory here. So this woman's coming and the disciples come and they say, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Get rid of her, Jesus. We don't want her around. This woman is like, this woman is everything that we, we don't really want to be in, involved with. All right. And so Jesus then answers and we get an extra statement here so that we can't possibly misunderstand the dog statement. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, so when we're talking about children and we're talking about dogs, there's no question here what's being talked about. We're talking about Israelites and we're talking about Gentiles, okay? But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he follows up his statement with another one. And this is where, we, this is where Mark picks up. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Which is even harsher, honestly, than Mark's telling of the story. But she said, but she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. That's where we get the word for mega, that, that Hebrew word. So literally, you've got a mega faith. It shall be done for you as you wish, and her daughter was healed. So we're trying to get the full story here, the full picture. I mean... Is it possible that Jesus was mimicking the Jewish attitude at the time? Is it possible that the attitude and the assumptions of the disciples about who the Messiah came for and what this was all about was something, you know, that, that he was their hero, their savior, and certainly not the savior of a Syrophoenician, certainly not a Canaanite descendant's savior or Lord? You know, is, is Jesus here recalling the instruction in Exodus 20 to show no mercy as that part of the Hebrew backstory and mirroring a stereotypical Jewish perspective in front of his disciples. The disciples probably really thought those things that I've just shared. And, and they were the ones that when, Jesus was, or when the woman was crying out said, get lost, or wanted him to say that. What we do know from the story is that Jesus eventually shows mercy. And therefore, Jesus does the very thing that Moses forbids his people to do at that point, which was show mercy to these folks. So it's possible, right? I mean, the rationale for the slaughter in the Old Testament was idolatry, was these people are, are idolatrous, which was considered demonic. So there's a little bit of this story here where this healing story of a demon-possessed woman is this great reversal about this historic divide, invading Canaan with mercy rather than the command to show no mercy. It's possible. Maybe his words were a testing of sorts for her faith. And yet this woman is suffering with a lot of pain watching a child um, unable to fend for herself. So it's really hard for me to just easily kind of explain it away and say, well, this is clearly what it is. We can't read tone. What do you do when you can't read tone and something like this makes you uncomfortable? I mean, I've got my ideas about it, but I'm not, I'm not positive. We cannot absolutely figure out this story about Jesus. 
we can see the big picture, but at surface level, this is really important, at surface level, it just, it doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel right. It doesn't match with the rest of the message that it seems like we've seen, even though there's mercy at the end. And maybe, friends, maybe just this one time, maybe that's not the point. Do you know that Jesus is not the hero in this story? It's her. She really is the point. She's the biggest hero in these verses, and we have to be aware of that. I mean, Jesus gets bested, and he knows it. He actually invites it. But someone else gets the punchline. Somebody else gets the punchline in this story. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting. The story here isn't labeled, Jesus heals a woman's daughter in the scriptures. Um, the story isn't even about the healing. It's about the faith of the outsider who was convinced that God's goodness extended to and included her and them as well, despite apparent evidence otherwise. And that conviction proves true. She's the example. She's the one that wins the debate that none of the Pharisees could win. Jesus has a debate with the Pharisees about what's right and wrong. And he doesn't budge. Jesus has a bit of a debate with this woman about what's right and wrong. And he is moved. This... It's a fascinating, fascinating story, but I wonder if for this one, she is the point. Her faith. She's the first woman to speak in Mark's gospel. She's from an enemy race. And she's the one who opens the door for God's, whose faith opens the door for God's wholeness. Maybe that's why when in in the 1200s, when they created the chapter headings, they titled this section, The Faith... (laughs) of a Syrophoenician woman, and not Jesus heals a woman's daughter. Because maybe the point is her. I don't know. Here's what I know. In Matthew, the only two people that Jesus praises their faith publicly are this woman in his telling and a centurion, and a Roman centurion. Two people who were considered complete outsiders. And I mentioned earlier, the word that he uses for her faith is she has great Faith. She has mega faith. Two despised people in the eyes of the Jews. And the only time in the entire gospel of Mark where Jesus is addressed as Lord. The only time where Jesus is addressed as Lord in the book of Mark is her. But Lord, she says in the literal translation. If we're confused or disturbed a little bit by Jesus here, friends, then that puts us in the same position as this woman. So, so maybe our best answer is looking to her because she looks at Jesus and says on a surface level, hold on, this doesn't add up. I call bull because this does not sound like what I've heard. I've heard the stories of what you do. I've heard the stories of who you are. I've heard the stories of the kingdom. I heard what happened in Gerasa. He was an outsider too, so I don't buy it. And she pushes, and I love it. See, she says, I don't buy the children and the dogs nonsense, and I think we both know that you're powerful, and I think we both know that my daughter's not disqualified. 
The literal translations often introduce her statement with, but she said. It can also be translated, um, and yet. So Jesus says these words, and she says, and yet. And yet. She goes along with his story, with his words, with his images even. And yet. Um, and, and to the end yet, here's what Jesus says. Good answer. He says, good answer. Her, her and yet, her, her, her but, Jesus, is added to the biblical list of the many faithful who have contended with God when something doesn't pass their nonsense meter. You know when you're, you've got leftovers in the fridge and give them like the sniff test? And you say, that's good. Or, ah, something feels off about this. Do you know the Bible's full of people having conversations with God by saying something feels off about this? I mean, David literally said, God, what are you doing? What is this all about? I'm so sick and tired of you ignoring my pain while, while wicked people prosper. And David gets like the, the whole like, Nickname of a, a man after God's heart. God is robust and can handle our, and yet, arguments. And I think that that's really good news. I mean, even Jesus himself. My God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross. This incredible human expression. God, why have you turned your back on me? You know, we theologically don't believe that God turned his back on Jesus. We're told by the scriptures that God was in Christ, not apart from Christ in those moments. This was not the father against the son. This was the father and the son leaning into the redemption of self-giving love. So, so when Jesus cries out, ah, this just doesn't feel right because it doesn't feel right. Because God's heart, there was still more to it, more to be revealed, more to be shown about the whole story. So Jesus even says, God, this isn't who you are. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called the Gr A Grief Observed. Dwayne, can you throw the quote up because this isn't working? Thanks. And here's, here's one section that he says that I, I find profound, and he's dealing with the loss of his wife. Okay? His wife has died, and his faith is, uh, I think shaken is probably a fair, a fair word to say. Um, and so he's writing to a friend, and he put some of, and this is, this is, he said, I tried to put some of these thoughts to see this afternoon. He reminded me that the same thing seems to have happened to Christ. Why hast thou forsaken me? He says, I know. Does that make it easier to understand, though? Is the, does that make it easier to understand, though? Not that I, this is, this is what I think is so profound, not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, I think. <laughs> I love the honesty of C.S. Lewis. Not that I, I think, am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so, that there, so there's no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. 
He said, that's, that's my fear. That's, and that's what's keeping him on the path to know God more. Because what I see right here and right now, in this exact moment maybe, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like the fullness. I don't believe in my heart of hearts that this is what God's character is really like. So I'm going to keep leaning in. And you know if you keep reading his, his writings as he got older, the grief didn't leave him. But the conviction of God's character continued to emerge as beautiful and full. Um, Sometimes questioning God is an act of faith. Sometimes it's an act of mega faith. We, we persist because we have learned God's heart and been given his spirit in our own lives. So listen to me, friends. We're not talking about manipulation of the scriptures. We're not talking about uh, just trying to hear what you want to hear and then make it, make it what you want to hear. Um, We're talking about the fact that as we pursue a deep life with Jesus by his spirit, that when we call out God on something that doesn't pass our nonsense test, it's very likely that God will respond not with defensiveness, but with good answer. Good answer. That's part of the journey of faith. You see, this back and forth with God is a statement and an expression of a faith that's alive and that cares about relationship. What if we learn to embrace and yet as a part of our ongoing faith exploration and relationship with God? I've seen the dead ends in my life. (sighs) And yet, you've promised that you're at work with me. You have promised that you're doing something, Lord. I've seen the brokenness in the church and it discourages me. And it makes me think that this is just... Our attempt here at Life Path is just a waste of time because when you look at the church landscape across our world, it's, it's broken. And yet, you created this for a reason. I've seen the things that make me wonder, God, if you're good, and how come you allow so many people who use your label to constantly misrepresent you and do horrible things? And yet, somehow, after 2,000 years... We can still see with all the brokenness of the church and all of the hypocrisy that's existed out there and within us, we still somehow can grasp the humble, radical, upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Somehow. The church and the spirit of Christ has persisted. I cry out to God and I feel silence. And yet, you said you're with me. She refuses to stop believing that God's goodness is available against all odds. Mega faith, mega courage. I I don't want to suggest, friends, that there's no mystery. I don't want to suggest that there aren't hard things that we can't figure out or wrap our minds around. um, Because there are. There are things that we will just never get. Um, And and yet. uh, And yet, even though we don't always get the answers... Even though we won't always even be right in our conclusions, we have been given the Spirit of God for a reason. Romans 12 uh, speaks about our minds being renewed in Christ. And when our minds are renewed, then we can do what? We can test and approve what God's will is. We have, God's given us the ability to weigh things and sense what God's up to. It's beautiful. So if, if um, we, we have to have the ability to 
to get a sense of God's heart by the gift of his spirit and have that conviction grow. So if something feels off, we actually wrestle with it. Um, Because when we don't ask good questions of God, when we don't contend for what we really know Jesus to be about, then we won't grow in relationship. Um, Friends, we need more Christians in the world to believe that Jesus is every bit as good as the message that he actually proclaims is. Uh, We need people who believe and push for peace and compassion in a world that is bent on violence and aggression. Because we believe in God's character. We need people who believe that every life is significant. We need people who believe that God can reach out and redeem each one of us and even our entire world. People are losing faith in God because they're losing faith in goodness. And we need to hold that God is good and that God is the author of all that is good and we need to embody goodness despite anything else that we end up facing. This is how we keep each other on the path of love and care. I spoke with a Zambian-American pastor earlier this week. Um, this wonderful, wonderful man. And, uh, and uh, he shared this reflection about how tired he is as a pastor and, and how tired the people are at his church. And I could only just nod. Um, and how tired Christians are across our whole country right now. And he shared Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we don't give up. Um, We are so tired. (laughs) My goodness. We are weary. I see it in your eyes when I talk to you. I, I hear about it. But the scriptures encourage us to continue, and that if we don't get tired, we'll reap a blessing if we don't give up. We'll, reap, we'll see the benefit of a life that is constantly lived with the conviction that God is good that keeps leaning into the, the fact that God is at work, like this extraordinary woman. Let's keep contending for healing. Let's keep crying out to God. And whether we see it or not, keep proclaiming what we know to be true and good about God's promises. This woman is advocating before God for those that she loves. I cannot imagine how tired she is. Some of you probably look at this story of a tired mom with a suffering kid and you just have a sense of the heartache and the exhaustion. And you don't even have to be a parent. But for whatever circumstances you've brought, you, you've experienced, some of you just, you feel it, right? But she comes with a patient, unyielding conviction that God is good and that God will work. And she prevails. How would our world change if each of us shared her conviction deep in our bones every day? If each of us walked forward and said, I believe so deeply that God is good and up to something good in the world and able to do beautiful things and healing works, that I'm going to hold on to that and I'm going to contend for that always. It would change our lives. It would change our world. So may God grow that sort of faith in us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, We keep trying for honesty here. Um, Honesty and truth. And uh, we believe the depth of your goodness. And we want to keep learning how to contend for that even when life experiences discourage us. Even when we we feel like you're silent, Lord. Um, The irony of 
praying <laughs> right now and talking about the fact that you sometimes feel silent and not at work or not meeting us where we need is, is part of this journey, I think. And so, God, I, I pray for each one of us in here. You know where we're at with our life. You know where we're at with deep questions. You know where we're at with pain and sorrow and heartache or hope and joy and inspiration. But we pray that you would place in us like a seed this really deep, deep conviction and experience of your love that helps us hold on to that. That we would tell stories that when we hear them would redefine over and over how amazingly good you are so that we would not waver when it gets complicated. Be with us, Lord. Amen.